How many of you guys and ladies own a tool belt? I know there's, I know at least one lady that does actually. When a carpenter walks onto a construction site to begin a day's work, he doesn't try to carry every tool that he owns on his person. A whole bunch of his tools are out in his truck for special circumstances. But what he carries with him in his tool belt are the tools that he uses all the time, the things that he needs access to on a constant basis in order to do his job. My intention for this last session of our study in the book of Zechariah is for us to, to gather up a handful, a handful of tool belt truths that we need to carry with us every day as we continue on this earth the process of setting the stage for God's glorious return. I'm going to start with a very important takeaway that should already be very familiar with you guys if you've been here for most of this study. And that is the central exhortation or call in the book of Zechariah. Who can tell me what that is? Loudly. Very good. Return to me that I may return to you. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3. And by the way, three times in that, in that verse, it says, declares Yahweh of hosts. Three times in one verse. If you take that verse in isolation, it would be easy to conclude that God is saying, if you don't return to me, you can forget about me coming back to you. But when you look at that verse in the context of the whole book of Zechariah and the context of the whole Old and New Testament, it becomes very apparent that what God is saying is, I am coming back and you need to be ready. His return is a certainty decreed from before the foundations of the world. God's call to His people to return to Him is directly tied to His promised intention declared over and over and over again in the Old Testament to come back to Jerusalem to dwell in the midst of His people. Zechariah's original audience was no doubt expecting a near-term fulfillment of that promise in the form of the glory of God coming and dwelling once again in the temple that they were in the process of rebuilding right at that time. Solomon's temple before this one had a holy of holies and the Shekinah glory of God took up residence in that, in that room. The tabernacle in the wilderness long before there was ever a temple. When they dedicated that tabernacle at the end of, of, of Exodus, the glory of God came and inhabited the temple. So Zechariah's first audience was expecting that this call of God for them to return to Him was in anticipation of His very soon return to their midst. But God clearly had far more in mind than just that temple and that generation of His people. Even Zechariah's own generation had plenty of evidence to understand that what God is saying in these, in these great prophetic passages is far, far greater in scope and in scale and in magnitude than just what was going on with them at that point. God is pointing in these passages to a day when He is going to clean house in order to make His land and His people ready, worthy for Him to come back and dwell in their midst. 
He was calling His people then as He is now to act as His agents to set the stage for the glorious day of His return when He'll live where we are. And He'll reign from Jerusalem over all the earth. He's calling us to be faithful stagehands to make things ready for His imminent return. Starting with ourselves. The, the most foundational stage setting that this book talks about is what goes on in the hearts of God's people. So he says, return to me that I may return to you. Now we'll come back to that central call at several points as we proceed through some of the other big picture lessons and themes of the book. The second major theme that is very much tied to the first is that when God does return, He is going to finish the house cleaning. He's going to purge His land and His people from everything and everyone that does not belong in His holy presence. In chapter 3, God declares that He will remove the iniquity of His land in a single day. In chapter 5, He says that He will pour out a curse over the land that will consume the houses of everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely by His name. In that same chapter, through a vivid vision, He declares that He is going to cast away wickedness from His land to a far away place. In chapter 11, God pronounces the inevitable doom of foolish shepherds and of those who follow them. And in the final oracle, in chapters 12-14, through God speaks of the day when He's going to execute a terrible judgment not only against the nations that have opposed Him and His people, but even against His own people, Israel and Judah. He will eradicate every idol to which men have bowed. He will execute every teacher of falsehood. They will perish from the land. The last part of chapter 13 says that two-thirds of all the inhabitants of the land will perish by the hand of God. See, God's call to return to Him is a matter of life and death. Every man, woman, and child who ignores or rejects God's call to turn their hearts to Him will perish. There will be no safe harbor. There will be no place of escape in that day from God's fierce judgment. Alright. God calls us to return to Him so that He may return to us. And He promises that He's going to come and He's going to purge His land of everything and everyone that doesn't belong in His holy presence. That's a really big deal and it's a really big problem for us. We talked about this a lot on the worship this morning. It means that it's really, really important for us to understand how our hearts get turned to God. How do we go about satisfying this requirement on which our eternal life depends? Well, first, it's critical for us to understand a couple of things about ourselves that this book tells us. And the first thing that the book tells us about us, the first thing the book tells us about us is that we're prone to do the exact opposite of what God is commanding us to do. We don't even have the inclination to turn our hearts to God. 
And the second thing that this book tells us about us is that even if we did have the inclination to come to God, we are utterly disqualified from coming anywhere near God. Right in the first chapter, immediately after calling His people to return to Him, God reminded them of the miserable failure of their forefathers to heed that same call. Not just one generation of their forefathers. Generation after generation after generation of the Israelites and Judahites going back in every book of the Old Testament failed to turn their hearts fully to God. There was no basis in the historical evidence for the Judahites listening to Zechariah to believe that they were going to do any better. In chapter 11, God commissioned His prophet Zechariah to shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter. It's a kind of a tough assignment. God spoke of Israel and Judah as wayward sheep who prefer foolish and worthless shepherds. Who placed no value on the godly shepherds, the true prophets that God had graciously sent to them over and over. In fact, the wages that they assigned to Zechariah for his faithful shepherding in chapter 11 were the same as the price that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day paid to secure the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. Thirty lousy pieces of silver. See, we are not inclined to turn our hearts to God. And even if we were, we would be utterly disqualified from doing so. Because we have nothing of value to offer to God. We have nothing to commend ourselves to a holy God. And it's far worse than that actually. Because it's not just the absence of merit that keeps us from being able to draw near to God. It is the presence of gross uncleanness. In chapter 3, God presented an image of the very worst kind of uncleanness that a Jew in that day could have even imagined. And He presented that picture in the person that was most exalted among men in Israel as far as His closeness to God. and His ability to actually come into physical proximity to God's presence in the temple. And that was the high priest who got to actually go into the Holy of Holies once each year on the Day of Atonement. In that vision in chapter 3, the high priest Joshua is standing before Yahweh clothed in robes that are covered in excrement. And standing right beside Joshua is Satan, eager to point out to Yahweh that this guy is worthy only of condemnation. Just look at his clothes. As if God had a vision problem. And because Joshua as the high priest acted as God's appointed mediator between himself and his people, what was true of Joshua's uncleanness was true of the uncleanness of every Jew, every Israelite, every Judahite, every Gentile convert in Israel and in Judah. In other words, Joshua's uncleanness was a picture of our uncleanness. Yours and mine. 
There was no more vivid way for God to point out the utter hopelessness of any effort that we might make to approach God on our own merits. So, the turning that God commands and requires of us in order for Him to come and dwell in our midst is a supernatural turning. Supernatural because it's not part of our nature. It's not something that we can muster up. God has to make us clean so that we can dwell with Him and He has to make us come to Him. God does what we could never do. In that amazing vision in Zechariah 3, Satan was chomping at the bit to point out the grotesque uncleanness of Joshua and of all the people. But before Satan could utter a word, the angel of Yahweh who I am convinced is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? While Joshua was still standing there in his uncleanness, God said, this one is mine. He didn't wait for Joshua to give a defense because he knew that Joshua had no defense. He didn't wait for Satan to make an accusation because there was no news that Satan could have given to Yahweh about Joshua's uncleanness. And then God instructed His angels to take the unspeakably unclean garments off of that man and to clothe them with royal robes. God said to Joshua, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you to clothe you with festal robes. God didn't wait for Joshua to cast off his uncleanness because his real uncleanness wasn't his garments, it was his heart. Just like yours and mine. We talked about that this morning in the worship. Every man since Adam has been unclean and unworthy of the presence of God except one. See, we had no defense before God except Christ. The one and only way that you and I could ever be made worthy to live in the presence of God is if God makes us worthy. Just like He did with Joshua. Just like He did with Isaiah. In Isaiah 6 that Gordon read this morning. That's why the only one speaking and acting at Joshua's trial in chapter 3, the only one speaking and acting was God. You can get on YouTube anytime and you can find step-by-step do-it-yourself procedures for all kinds of things. All kinds of tasks. But here's one procedure I guarantee you will never find. A do-it-yourself heart transplant. God commands and requires that we turn our hearts to Him. And if we don't, we perish. Not just the physical body, but the spirit. We remain under the curse of our sin forever. We have a huge insurmountable problem with God's requirement. We don't have the inclination and we are disqualified. So, God has to do it all. And that's what we call, that's what God calls grace. Getting what we don't deserve. See, that's how we come to be 
righteous in the eyes of God. And as those who have been declared righteous in the eyes of God, that is also the way that we grow in our practical righteousness and usefulness to God while we're here. By abandoning all dependence on what we can offer to God and trusting entirely on what God has given to us. I believe even that trust comes from God. But from our perspective, the the part that God calls and commands us to do is to believe Him. To trust Him to do what we could never do. He's the one that makes us worthy. John 6, 28 and 29 just struck me that when after defeating the 5,000 when the people followed Jesus to the other side of the, the sea and they found Him again and they came and He knew that they wanted some more physical food. and He said, don't work for the food that will perish. And they said, okay, well what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Do you think that the Gospel, the good news... How men get right with God was any different in the Old Testament than it it is in the New Testament? No. If Zechariah tells us anything, it tells us the unity of God's Word as it points to Christ as the one and only solution for men. Messiah is all over this book. Abraham believed God. He trusted God. The promise of God. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Just like he does us. It wasn't his performance. It was his faith in God's character and in God's work of grace. Now how do we fulfill God's command then to to us to return to Him? We don't. He does. (laughs) He makes us return. Twice in chapter 11, I will make them come. What we do is we trust in His promise and in His provision to bring us to Himself and to make us worthy. Now, I want to go to one of the themes in this book that I think is is uh, not subtle, but often missed. And I've talked about it quite a bit as we've proceeded through the study. This, I believe, is one of the most critical and eminently practical things that we need to learn from the book of Zechariah. And it is God's heart for His people. And it's personal. Both what God requires of us and what God promises to us are deeply personal matters. That's evident even in the central commission that God gave to His people in the first few verses of the book. Return to Me that I may return to you. He didn't, God is not saying, look, guys, get your act together and maybe I'll bless you from a distance. That's Islam. God is saying, turn around, come back to me, that I may come back to you. This exhortation from God is directly connected with his decree from eternity past to create a people for his own treasured. 
possession. The people He calls His inheritance. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says, Yahweh's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Look at the words, listen to the words that God uses to describe His heart for His people in these verses from Zechariah chapter 1. This is, if you want to look at it, it's verses 12 through 17. Then the angel of Yahweh said, O Lord of hosts, and I know I switch between Yahweh and Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the name of God, Yahweh. O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, with comforting words. So the angel speaking with me said, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry with my own people, they furthered the disaster. And then he says, therefore thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Listen to those words. No compassion. Compassion. Indignant. Gracious. Comforting. Exceedingly jealous. A little angry. Very angry. These are descriptions of the heart of God. They aren't figures of speech that describe God in human terms so we can get some kind of vague idea what He's like. These are God's own deeply personal declarations of His heart and His intentions toward His people. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you've ever been the parent of a child who doesn't fit the description compliant, you understand the language of those verses very well. In Zechariah chapter 8, listen to these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. See, God isn't talking here about some kind of gift delivered from a distance by parcel post. He's talking about coming to live right in the midst of His people. He's talking about His own delight to behold His people enjoying the blessings that have come to them by His hand because of His presence in their midst. It's like the picture of a, of a loving father sitting on his porch watching his children play in a place of, of great abundance and perfect security that He has made for them. It's personal to God. Just another couple of little passages. Zechariah 8, verses 7 and 8. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save My people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and I will live in the midst of them 
and they shall be My people. And I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Chapter 9, And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people. For they are as stones of a crown sparkling in His land. Do you hear the delight of God in these words? Based on God's own declarations, I'm convinced that He wants you to know this about Himself. He wants you to know this about Himself. The joy, the delight that you anticipate that you will experience in that glorious place pales by comparison with the unspeakable joy, the divine delight that God Himself will experience. Sometimes we let our insistence on our bulletproof theological systems lead us to unbiblical conclusions about what God is actually like. We think, okay, God's perfect, so I can't add anything to Him. I can't really bless Him. That's just some sort of anthropomorphism. Because He's, a, he's perfect. That would mean He's not perfectly blessed already. <laughs> so we treat what God says about Himself as if it's not actually true. That's too much theological precision, beloved. We rightly acknowledge that His greatest glory is our greatest good. But if we conclude from that that the good gifts that God gives to His children are some kind of an afterthought, that they're just a byproduct of His self-glorification to which He gives very little thought, we're denying His own declarations about His own heart toward His people. In Hosea 11, God declared that He would send Israel into exile to Assyria because they refused to return to Him. In verse 7, He says, My people are bent on turning away from Me. But listen to what He says then. Speaking directly to that rebellious people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within Me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. In Jeremiah 32, God told the Judahites who were about to be taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar about His long-term plans for them. In verse 36, He promises to regather His people and to bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And then he says this, and as I read these verses, just a few verses, I'm going to ask you to suspend all your notions about what you think God experiences and listen to what He says He experiences. Listen to Him. Let Him tell you about Himself. They shall be My people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear Me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of Me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from Me. And then listen to this. I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all My heart and with all my soul. How can, how can we read those words and not be convinced 
that God is even more excited, more delighted, more filled with joy about His redemptive purposes toward us than we are. Quite a few years ago when I was working on a a series on, on the Trinity, my dear brother Ron Manis put this book in my hands. It's called The Deep Things of God. How the Trinity Changes Everything. This is one of the one of the absolute top books in my life as far as the impact outside of the Bible, of course. The impact on my life. Because of what that book pointed out to me from the Bible about the relationship that has always existed within the Trinity. My concept of God's intentions toward us have changed forever. I, I finally have at least a glimpse of just how delightful it is to God to create a people for His own possession so that He can extend the inherently extensible love that He has known from eternity past. The love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed with one another in perfection forever. Can you imagine perfect love with no object? With no one to love? God's never had that problem. He has always had a perfect and perfectly worthy object for His love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have perfectly known, perfectly loved, and perfectly communed with one another forever. And God determined before the universe existed that He was going to extend that amazing love even further. He was going to create a people made in His own image who would share His nature And He was going to make those people worthy objects of His love. The love that God loves to give away. And so when God's amazing plan to call out a people to be His eternal treasure comes to perfect fruition, when these promises get fulfilled, the one who who will rejoice with the greatest abandon, the one who will fill the heavens and the earth with His delight, will be God. Think about that for a while. God's relationship with us is deeply personal to God and is therefore deeply personal to us. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin, the payment, the satisfaction for our sin. A little later in that same chapter, John says, We love because He first loved us. We love God because He first loved us. We love men because He first loved us. We love the lost because God first loved us. If your attempts at godly living feel to you like you're constantly swimming upstream, what needs fixing is not your commitment to be godly. What needs fixing is not your resolve to keep the promises that you can make to God. What needs fixing, beloved, is your personal knowledge and daily awareness of the character of God and of His promises to you. You might be lousy at keeping your promises, but God is perfect at keeping His. So if you bank on His, it'll get you a lot further down the road. In fact, it'll get you all the way down the road if your trust in His character and His promises is what drives you every day. 
Paul said in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. How do we live lives that delight God and that advance His kingdom right now? The same way Paul did. (laughs) By faith in the One who gave everything to make us His. The One who loves us with a love that we can't even fathom. When you know God better, better personally, you will love Him more and you will trust Him more. And the more you love Him and the more you trust Him, the more you will delight in pleasing Him and doing the things that He loves. That's why over and over in the passages in Zechariah and throughout the Bible in which God calls His people to repentance, He declares His heart of compassion and grace toward His people. It is indeed the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4 So what are you doing every day to get to know God better? Personally. Are you saturating your mind and your heart with every word that God has made known to you concerning Himself? That's your necessary food. That's my necessary food every single day. Far more important than the next meal on your table. Do you ever quietly ponder what God has said to you about Himself after you've read it in His Word? That's how you listen to God. Do you respond to what He tells you about Himself by talking to Him in prayer? Do you find yourself eager because of what you behold of God to do the things that advance His kingdom and bring Him honor. The next verse after the one that Gordon read this morning after the after God took that coal and touched it to Isaiah, Isaiah's lips and declared him clean says that Isaiah said to God, Here I am, send me. That's how we get to that mindset. That's how we get to that willingness is that we come to know the grace of God more thoroughly than we know today. To be eager to serve our King because we love our King is delightful to our King. If you find yourself struggling consistently to do any of those things, start with prayer and stay with prayer. And a good prayer to start with is the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1. Verses 18 and 19, after he told them all the amazing things that God had given to them in Christ, and he said, he said, they lack nothing. Nothing. Then he gave, he prayed a prayer for them, and and I'm going to ask you to take that prayer and put it in the first person and pray it every day for at least a few days. Father, enlighten the eyes of my heart that I may know the hope of your calling the glory of Your inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of Your love toward us who believe. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him above all authority in every name that is named. God put that power in you in the person of the Holy Spirit and He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you ask or think according to that power in you. Ask God to show you His heart for His people 
He wants you to know it. Another hugely important lesson from this book is that God's favor and God's blessing come with God. God's favor and God's blessing cannot be separated from the person of God. In the first vision that God gave to Zechariah, the angel of Yahweh called out to Yahweh. He asked, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And then Zechariah says, as we saw before, God responded with comforting words, with gracious words. And here were those words. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. See, we as God's people will get the full measure of His compassion when we get Him. When He comes to dwell right in our midst. In Zechariah's third vision in chapter 2, God says that when He fulfills these great promises, Jerusalem will be a city inhabited without walls. That means a city that needs no physical fortifications. Why? Because God says, I will be the wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. God's perfect protection comes to us with God. The compassion, comfort, protection, abundant prosperity, great joy that God promises to give to us as His people come to us when He comes to us. Because they proceed from Him. They are eternally, inextricably connected with who He is. We don't even know what such things are if we don't know God. We're just filling our lives with crummy imitations. See, it's a package deal. And as I've said before, it's not actually a deal, it's a gift. Now this certainly does not mean that God is not showing us compassion now. That He's not protecting us now. That He's not providing for us now. See, God is in us and with us already in the person of His Holy Spirit. He gave us His Spirit to dwell within us and that's the greatest blessing that we know while we remain on this unredeemed earth. But the fullest and most perfect experience of every good thing that comes from the hand of God will be realized by us as His people when God is in our midst, both spiritually and physically. That's going to happen. When the one and only source of every blessing comes to live right in the midst of us. In short, the blessings of God are part and parcel of relationship with God. You can't have one without the other. And what that means for us right now, today, is that you and I cannot know and experience the tremendous blessings that come from God's character apart from real and abiding relationship and communion with God Himself. It's personal. Is that important? Is that practical? It's ridiculously important. <laughs> it is practical beyond measure. It's practical at a level that exactly determines whether your life as a child of God will be frustrated and joyless and burdensome or joyful, compelling, and exceedingly blessed. 
And by compelling, I'm talking about, I'm talking about God pulling our hearts toward obedience like a powerful magnet. Instead of constantly climbing up a steep hill to get to a place of obedience and usefulness to God. Christians who pursue blessing without pursuing God Himself will never be blessed. Because you don't get blessing by pursuing blessing. You get blessing by pursuing God. The source of all blessing. Are you obsessed? Are you obsessed with pursuing the intimate, personal knowledge of God? Do you know that's your one legitimate obsession? It's not just legitimate. It's life. Just a couple of more points. God's power for us as His stagehands. Chapter 4, the vision of the golden lampstand with the two olive trees. That's a vivid picture that can be summed up in one word. Dependence. Because the picture in that vision is of a lampstand whose lamps are fed by golden olive oil that is constantly provided to the lamp without any effort. Without the lamp doing anything. Without any intervention from men. Without the priest's involvement to replenish the oil of the lamp. That is a picture of the Holy Spirit enabling the people of God. And how we know that for sure is because in that very chapter, there's a, there's a decree, a very simple decree that God gave to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that he needed to keep in mind while he was working on rebuilding God's temple. And that simple decree is this. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's one of those absolute bedrock principles that sets our upside-down world right-side up. It cures us of the futility of looking to our abilities. And it focuses our attention entirely on God's abilities. Now I'll ask again, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, if you enjoy beating your brains out in an effort to be useful to God and getting nowhere, then that principle won't be of much use to you. But if you like the idea of being powerfully and eternally useful and productive to God without having to swim against the tide, then this principle is huge. Think of it this way. If you had to have an oxygen tank to take your next breath, how far away from that tank would you let yourself get? I had a dear uncle who died of emphysema and I got to watch that in real time. See, considering that your brain and your heart and every organ and every cell in your body would shut down in short order if you didn't have that next breath, you would be very, very sure that that tank didn't get very far away from you. And you would also know that anything that got between you and that oxygen, oxygen tank would be your mortal enemy. So knowing that the fuel that gives life to your spirit and that empowers you to be useful to God every moment of every day of your life is the Holy Spirit, what does that tell you about how you must live each day? It tells you that you must live dependently. You probably heard someone say that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. <laughs> My answer to that is 
You are absolutely right. And what kind of a fool would a man be if he had to crawl for the rest of his life because he would not avail himself of the crutch that allows him to stand and to walk? Our lives are lives of the greatest imaginable dependence upon God. Not only for the power to live well, but for life itself. In his great sermon in Athens in Acts 17, Paul said, in Him we live and move and are. Last point, God's gift of hope. The promise that our King is indeed coming. There are a whole bunch of life-transforming, worldview-changing things that God promises in this little nine-and-a-half-page book of Zechariah. And He's going to fulfill every one of those promises without exception and without reservation. He's already fulfilled some of them. He already sent the one that He calls His servant, His companion. Eternal companion, by the way. The perfect high priest. He sent that one the first time to be our perfect sacrifice. He came to us, chapter 9, He came to us in humility, endowed with salvation. Humble riding on a, on a donkey. He came to take away our uncleanness and to clothe us with His own royal clothing. The vision in chapter 3. We who believe in Him already stand righteous in the eyes of God, covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That in itself is cause for not just rejoicing, but the kind of gratitude that leaves us entirely yielded to God's purposes. If He gave us nothing more than to make us righteous in His eyes for all eternity, we'd have everything that we need for life and godliness. God is going to send that same perfect servant to earth once again. And when He comes again, He's going to come as judge. He's going to judge the earth and all its inhabitants. Most of mankind will perish in that day. That is going to happen. God is going to send that same Messiah to earth and He will come again as the righteous King of kings to rule over all of His creation from Jerusalem. When He returns the next time, He will be the only one. And His name will be the only one. There will be no other king to whom men bow. There will be no other name that is exalted among men. That is going to happen. God is going to completely put away sin and the curse of sin forever from His creation and from His people. That is going to happen. God is going to turn the hearts of His chosen people so that we will love Him and we will worship Him and we will be grateful to Him and we will obey Him with great joy. He's going to make everything in His land, including the hearts of His people, holy to Yahweh forever. That's going to happen. That is the reality for which God is preparing us every day of our lives on this earth. That is the reality for which He left us here. He left us here to prepare others for that kingdom. If you have rejected God and His Messiah, or even if you have simply pushed Him aside because 
you don't think it's worthy of your consideration right now. You are presently headed for the judgment that will come like a thief in the night and that will take the lives of most of mankind forever. John 3.18 says, if you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, you're judged already. That's your default position. That fierce and uncompromising judgment is coming whether you believe it or not. If you stand today in unbelief, you stand condemned until and unless you place your trust in Jesus Christ only to save you. And today might be the last opportunity that you get to do that. If you belong to Jesus Christ by God's grace because you have trusted in God's Messiah, you are irreversibly headed for the glorious kingdom of our great God and Savior and nobody can keep you out of it. That's your hope. That's my hope. That hope is the anchor of our souls and that hope tells us what our lives are supposed to be about every day when we wake up. The reason that God left you and me here after saving us is so that we will set the stage for His glorious return. He's given us a whole lot of reason in this book to do that joyfully. Dear Father, thank You for this, this book of Zechariah. Thank You for this faithful prophet who at a, in a time when so many, so many had turned away from You, he simply followed Your Word and he willingly declared Your Word. Lord, make us attentive to these things. We pray that these principles that we've looked at today and many more from this book would be emblazoned on our hearts so that we would walk in a manner worthy of our high calling as ambassadors, as agents of the Son of God, the King of Kings. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.